And last Sunday, um, we had uh, we had talked about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about it from the perspective of the gospel writers, what they saw, what they heard, how Jesus prayed, how he basically encouraged and uh, really, uh, if you want to say criticized or corrected his disciples for having fallen asleep during the moment that he needed them the most really to pray and be an encouragement to him. Now today, the title of the message is this, another Jesus prayer. It's Jesus' prayer for you. And I don't know if you recognize that or not, but Jesus has prayed for you. It's recorded in scripture, but also the Bible tells us that he is still interceding between you and the Father, even to this day, amen? He is still doing that work today. And so I wanted us to wrap up the series by looking at John chapter 17 and talking about Jesus' prayer for you. I'll tie this into Easter in, towards the end of the message, but I find it interesting that the few chapters before John 17, those last few chapters, Jesus is giving instructions to the disciples and he's telling them about his betrayal that's going to happen. He's telling them about the arrest, his death, resurrection, and he's giving them hope that he is not going to leave them alone that he is going to send to them. In fact, the father is going to send to them a magnificent gift that is still here today called the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so in John chapter 17, we'll break down the entire chapter, but we won't read the entire chapter. John chapter 17 verses one and two Jesus, it says, had spoken these words, talking about his impending death and resurrection, giving instructions about the Holy Spirit. After he had spoken these words, it says he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Verse two, it says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I found it really interesting that Jesus looked up. In, in our modern day and time, you'll hear us and we've said it, I said it just a few moments ago. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes? We do that in our modern day time and culture because we're trying to eliminate distraction, because we're trying to focus on what we're saying. Jesus was not standing in a place of selfish pride, boldly looking up, but he was standing in the place of reception and saying, God, the Father is hearing me right now. In fact, you can see other examples throughout scripture of them. And if you are keen to some of the Sunday school that you remember, you'll remember learning some Psalms. I look towards the hills from where my help comes from. I lift up my eyes and see salvation that's coming. So Jesus is standing there and he looks up towards heaven and that posture is important because he's praying in the direction of the divine recipient of his prayer. So I'm, whether you close your eyes or keep them open, how many of you have ever prayed with a group of kids? 
And then you heard Johnny call out Susie afterward. Susie had her eyes open. And then somebody calls out Johnny because, Johnny, how did you know unless you had your eyes open? Here's the deal. There's no rule, okay? This is pastor's rule for you, though. If you're driving and praying, don't close your eyes, okay? You can pray and drive, but keep your eyes open, amen? So, yes, what really matters to God is not where your eyes are looking, but it's the condition and the status of your heart. If it's sincere in the midst of that prayer, and what I find really powerful and amazing in those first five verses is Jesus, as he's praying aloud for his disciples to hear and those who are gathered there, he is making it very clear that this is not the prayer of an inferior being to a superior being. In fact, he declares over and over the co-equality of the Father and the Son in those first few verses. And that's important for us to understand. It was important for his disciples to know. Then in John chapter 17, verses six through 19, we hear Jesus praying for his disciples. And he's committing them to his father. In verse 11, John chapter 16, verse 11, he says this, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, talking to the Father. And then he prays this compassionate, heartfelt prayer. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So he prays emphatically for the disciples to be unified and for the Father to keep them, keep them in his name. He goes on to pray and to ask that Jesus is praying and saying, let my joy be fulfilled in them. He also, interestingly enough, prays that God the Father would not take the disciples out of the world. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody who said, I just want to go home. I just want to be out of this body. I just want to be with Jesus. Jesus prayed to the Father that the disciples would not have, if I could put it so casually, untimely death because he was commissioning them to carry on the job that he had been given to be able to proclaim the truth and the good news. And he says, please don't take them out Keep them in your name and keep them here. Keep them safe as long as possible. Why? Because the success of his mission was being handed off to this ragtag bunch of guys who doubted. And even when we read the story in the gospel, the account of the resurrection, it says, and others still yet did not believe that he had risen from the dead that had heard him talk about it. So Jesus' prayer is so important. He also prays in that long section of verses from six to 19, he prays this for his disciples. He prays that God the Father would keep them from evil or from the evil one. And he says, sanctify them in your truth. Set them apart, keep them holy. Have you ever wondered if God heard your prayer? Can I just see your hand? Just be honest, it's church, <laughs> don't lie. I don't want lightning to strike you today. Not on Easter. 
We've all wondered if God has heard our prayer, whether we were immature in our faith or whether we were praying and we weren't really sure if that was the prayer that was part of the will of God, but we've all kind of wondered that. When Jesus prayed for his 11 disciples there to that day and prayed that prayer for the followers he had on the earth, he prayed with absolute confidence that he knew that the Father was hearing him when he prayed and that he would answer that prayer. That is the way that you and I are to pray. Then at the close of his prayer, Jesus prays for you. Let's read these powerful words in verse 20 through 26. It says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Look at me for just a moment and understand the words of Jesus in this prayer He is declaring that his father loves you as much as he loves that only begotten son. What an amazing, captivating thought to know that God the father would hear and answer the prayer of Jesus and that the father loves you as he loves his one and only son his one and only begotten son. Verse 24, he goes further to expound on this prayer as he's talking to the father and he says, father, I desire also. In other words, I read this the way Dexter reads this. I read this. Oh, and one more thing. (laughs) Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Um, Okay, God, bless my day, bless my marriage, bless the finance, help me, Lord, not to kill my coworker. Oh, and one more thing. And Jesus is doing the same thing. So I, I feel confident that I, I'm, I've been praying in the right direction. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, it says there, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world Here yet is another example, and this is not really part of my notes, but I want you to understand the the in sync or the synchronicity of how Jesus has been declaring that he is one with the Father, and he's been doing this this whole time. It's been riling people up. It's been confusing some people, but here he is, and his prayer to the Father is that By his eternal nature, he has been loved by the Father from before the foundation of the world. That means he is from eternity and has always been, amen? He's praying that you and I get to be with him. Verse 25 and 26 say this, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them 
your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Literally that the Father's love would dwell in us. And if you caught what I said a moment ago about the Father loving you as much as he loved the only begotten Son, his instruction, we are to understand Jesus, his words, is that we would have that same love demonstrated to each other. That's hard. That's hard. Some days it's easier, but it's hard most days. So I want to point out to you a few things that I observe in this prayer for you and this prayer for me that we've seen in the last few verses. The first thing is this, Jesus prayed for our unity. In verse 20 and 21, he says, I don't ask for these only, those who are with me present, but for those also who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So here's what we need to understand about unity. It is not uniformity. We're to be faithful to the truth, but you are not, and I am not, to have a contentious spirit. Have you ever met somebody that just won't quit arguing? They just argue, 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 argue. <laughs> I bet God looks down at his people from time to time and sees the argument that goes on between us as his people. But here's the thing. We cannot forget that all true believers stand on level ground at the foot of Calvary's hill. Amen? All true, authentic believers. Now, there are some really crazy things going on in the world today and even in God's church that are perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not to be in unity with those who are false teachers or false preachers. We are to stand strong in the faith and in the truth, but we must understand Jesus is in this moment of his prayer recorded was praying for unity for his disciples, the 11 left, okay? And then for their work, all the believers that would come, and then those believers that would come. And I'm convinced that one of the prayers that he is still making intercession for us is that we would be unified. Charles Spurgeon, he was known as the Prince of Preachers, and he said this, those in whom Christ lives are not uniform, but they are one. Those who are quite uniform may yet have no love for one another, while those who differ widely may still be truly and intensely one. Our children are not uniform, but they still make up one family. That's why we can fellowship with those in other segments of the stream of faith that we're in. We have no problem welcoming those who are Bible-believing teaching the word of God and the truth of the word of God, regardless of whatever denominational name they've had. Because the children of God are beautiful. They look different. They worship different. You might be here today for the very first time and you thought, oh my goodness, what are these people doing waving their hands around? It's okay that we're different. The Bible talks about waving hands. So sometimes we do that. I almost started dancing a jig. 
don't know. I, I, when I was little, I went to a Church of God church with my great-grandmother, and she would dance in, she said, the Holy Spirit, okay? And she'd dance until all her bobby pins fell out of her hair. That's almost the feeling I had today, was to celebrate the, the joy that we have today. Thank God I don't have bobby pins or long hair. But I'm just saying this. We are the body of Christ. Jesus was and still is praying that we would be united. And that is because of our newly shared nature. We're to be united in him, even though we're many different parts of the body. So this isn't a legislated uniformity or a unity of institutions. I'm not saying that we've got to shut down every denomination and come all together. But what I'm telling you that I believe Jesus had in mind was an authentic unity empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, as the, the apostle Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter four, he says that you would be bound together in this unity, in the bond of peace by the Holy Spirit that you and I should be unified. He makes that remarkable statement regarding the unity among God's people in verse 21. Essentially, that our united faith will help the world to believe that he is the son of God. The lost are in need of the witness of a unified church because they can keep using the excuse of oh, I don't want to go to church because I all they do is bicker and fight and all they do is divide and start a different church and all they do is they can keep using that excuse as long as we aren't doing our part the bible says that we are to strive together for unity amen the next thing I see in verse 22 is that Jesus prayed for the church to be marked by his glory. And you might wonder what that word glory means. You think of like, you know, some awesome victory, you know, war movie and oh, it's glorious. It's awesome. The truest meaning of this word that we understand biblically, God's glory represents his presence. So Jesus prayed that the church would be filled with the presence of God and marked by it. Scripturally speaking, God's glory is on display as a tangible manifestation of his presence. When it says the glory of God filled the temple, that means people felt it. Let me just say this for anybody who's visiting. God gave you emotions. It's okay to share them sometime. Amen? It's okay to feel something in church besides just the air conditioning or just the heat. It's okay for you to feel and experience the presence of God because you are living in the answer to Jesus' prayer when he said, I'm praying that they would be marked by my presence, by the very presence of God. And in fact, I believe the presence of God shouldn't be something that you and I experience intermittently or irregularly. It should be something that we're well acquainted with. You don't have to wait to get to church to feel his presence. You don't have to wake up early 
to feel his presence. Can I, can I get an amen from some of those that sleep in? <laughs> and for the rest of us, you don't have to stay up late to feel his presence. Hallelujah. Okay. It doesn't matter. You can feel it anywhere. Here is the difference. This is what signifies the glory of God. A life that's truly submitted to his word and his will will experience his presence. Jesus then prayed for our unity to be founded in love in verse 23. Verse 23 says this, I and them and you and me that they become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So what I take from this is that our unity has got to be founded in love. Our unity demonstrates to the world that Jesus loves his people and that we love each other and that we will welcome those who want to come and experience God's love. Listen to me. God's love is transformative. You can't stay the same as you were when you experience God's love. That's why we talk about things like celebrate recovery. As God reveals himself to you through his word and through the steps that we take on this journey of our faith, then we start to understand, oh, okay, wait a second. God wants me to change. He loves me, but he wants to change me. <laughs> Sometimes that's easier said than done. Actually, most of the time, that's easier said than done. If our unity is not founded in authentic Christ-like love, then here's what'll happen. It'll very soon become legislated uniformity. You be like me or I don't accept you here. And that leads to division and the death of relationships instead of inspiring unity in the body of Christ. So our unity has to be rooted and grounded foundationally in love, the love of God. You and I, as believers, those of you who are believers in this room, many of which are, you need to understand something. We have a great responsibility before the eyes of the entire world to demonstrate love one to another. That is a great responsibility to not bicker and argue and expose divisions and cause divisions and gossip and all of those things. Jesus was praying against that way back then and he's still praying that same way today. In fact, I think when we fail to be unified, Darkness increases and the light recedes. And those who were right on the edge of coming into the kingdom of God now have more of a reason to stay away. So you and I have to watch our step in this world. The next thing he does in verse 24, Jesus prays for his people to be with him. This is so interesting to me. If you really study God's word and not just like breeze through it to read the Psalm of the day and check it off the list and go. Father, verse 24, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. Well, Jesus hasn't gone to the garden of Gethsemane yet. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't ascended to the father yet. He is in such a sink 
with God the Father in this moment, he, be, he is saying with fervor that I want my people to be with me where I am because he is both here and he is there. The same thing is true of true believers. The Bible says that you and I are currently seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that you and I are here, but we should also be redeemed and be spiritually alive in Christ. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. The words when he says, I desire, it means something. It means that he, he desires or he longs for the completion of the mission. I like this about Jesus. He's a, he's a guy that gets things done. He said he would do it, and he did it. How many of you like that? A contractor says, okay, I'll be there Tuesday. I'm going to fix the hole in your roof. You like it when Tuesday comes and the hole in the roof gets fixed. You like it when he showed up on time or texted and said, I'll be a few minutes late. I got caught in traffic. You like that. You don't like the guy who doesn't show up until Thursday and says, well, I got caught up on some things, and I just couldn't get around to it. You like Jesus because he gets the job done. And I sense in his prayer for us to be with him for eternity that he is longing for the master's plan to be fully completed and realized and that we would be with him at home in eternity with him. Earlier in John chapter 14, Jesus says this very thing. He promises it to his disciples. Listen to what he says in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And verse three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. He then says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What a magnificent thought. If you're here today and you're a believer, you are a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ who has pledged your allegiance to him, then the magnificent thought that you should be encaptured by or enraptured by is this, that he's coming back to take us to himself. He's coming back. The only way that that's possible is that the mission gets completed and that it did get completed through his death and resurrection. John chapter 19, verse 16 to 18 says this. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in the Aramaic language is called Golgotha. Verse 18 says, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. We had a conversation around the dinner table last night and it sparked some interesting discussion. I don't know where you stand on these things, and I don't have time in today's Easter message to go into it, but I want to make sure that you understand the Bible says to be absent as a believer, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
So you better know what you believe about what Jesus was doing during those three days because I don't think he was shackled up anywhere. I think he was celebrating with the Father. It is finished. It is done. And then he's coming back in those next moments. And here is what is amazing. After that grueling torture, abusive crucifixion, John tells us that Jesus said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He was buried on the, and then on the third day was resurrected from the dead. John tells us what happens in a garden where Jesus was laid to rest. Listen with your ears today and your heart. Last week, I preached Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says, and you're familiar with that term, that he was laid in a garden's tomb or in a garden tomb. We're familiar with that phrase. Look at what John chapter 20, verse 11 says about what takes place. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, hey, lady, why are you crying? <laughs> Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said, Mary. And immediately she turned and said to him, Rabbi, teacher. She immediately knew. Here's something really amazing. She supposed him to be the gardener. You say, well, why is that important? I believe in the wisdom of God in his grand plan that there was an important detail that I think we just skip right over. The suffering of our Savior began that night as he prayed that prayer three times in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's fitting that he ended his suffering in a garden, being resurrected from a tomb. And it's also really important for you to understand that our first and biggest mistake that was ever made for all of humanity happened in a garden. And here Mary is thinking, maybe the gardener has taken the body of Jesus. I believe that it's not without reason that the Savior is found in the garden. 
There's something redemptive going on because that's where humanity fell. So in God's wisdom, he decided that would be where redemption happened as well. If anybody in here is a gardener, you should be shouting right now. There are a few of you. I've eaten some of the fruits of your garden. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane that the beginning of your restitution from evil begins with, with Christ's suffering. In the first garden, you see Adam was overthrown by the evil one. But now in the garden, in the empty tomb, the second Adam has fully conquered that same evil one. In the first garden, sin was contracted. It was gotten, and we were indebted by our sins. But in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed, John says, expressing himself in such deep agony that drops of sweat turned into blood as if they were blood. Jesus was making sure to understand that death was no longer going to have a hold on his creation. It's in the empty tomb in a garden that life enters to restore us from death to life. In the first garden, Adam's liberty to sin brought him into chains. And now in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has been shackled for you on the night he was betrayed. Do you see the magnificent plan of a master builder? Hallelujah. It's amazing that we can now be freed and restored to liberty, true liberty, because of what was done in the garden. Let me say it better, what was undone in the garden. It's the garden of Gethsemane that first began the passion and then the great work of Jesus' full redemption was on display in that empty tomb in the garden. Adam, in the state of grace and innocence, he was placed in the garden and the first job he was given was to be a gardener. I see something amazing here. When Mary is saying, where, where has he gone? Where have you put him? Gardener, where have they? I think Mary's only real mistake in that moment was thinking that he was just the gardener of that physical place and not the gardener of every soul that would come into his kingdom in the future. Amen. Now the resurrected Christ is standing in the garden. And the Bible tells us in Revelation that when John sees the kingdom coming, he says he sees it and it's like paradise. In fact, if you hear the words of the one thief on the cross next to Jesus, when Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of an amazing place that would look like a garden. Jesus is the cultivator of our faith, amen? He is the great gardener and the ransom for your sin, the raiser of our ruins and the restorer of all things that are broken. He is alive and well. The Bible says he is now in heaven interceding and making a place for you and I. I want you to today consider where you stand in the scope of eternity. 
You might be a guest here. You might be somebody who's been in our church for a little while, and yet you've not made that decided step, that decision to say, Christ, I want to accept you as my Lord and Savior. In our church, we close our service like this similarly every week. And we really just say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Because there's a chance that he read between the lines and dropped something in your heart today. He could have used one of my points, but he also could have spoke something completely different. Maybe you're going through a hardship or a trial. That's why our prayer team members are here because they want to pray with you. They're not gonna share the details uh, with anybody else. They're just gonna agree with you in prayer. But if you're here today and you say, I need him. Maybe you're here and you've walked away from him and you're not living the life of faith you once did. Would you make the decision right now to step out of your seat and go and receive prayer to either one of these sides? Lord, I pray right now as you move on the hearts of our people and our guests today that any who would receive you would come. Your word says, Father, that you sent your only begotten son that none should perish that every single one who was willing would experience eternal and everlasting life. If that's you, step out of your seat right now and receive prayer. If you're here today, though, and you're a believer and you say, you know what, I'm going through a hardship and I need prayer. I want to have someone agree with me in prayer to pray for my healing or pray for my marriage or pray for a job opportunity, whatever it is. We want you to feel free to step out and receive prayer. Church is a great place to pray and Easter is a wonderful day to do it. Amen. For those of you who don't step out to pray, let's worship the Lord in this last song together. What a beautiful name 